Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. God's word says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we come to you wanting to see and know your glory. Would you give us eyes of faith this morning that we might see and know you for all that you are. It's in your son's glorious name we pray. Amen. Well, we've read from Luke 2 quite frequently these last three weeks as we've looked at the words of Christmas. Today we're going to focus on the fact that when the angelic multitude praised God, they did so by saying, Glory to God in the highest. Raymond Ortland writes, Would you or I have begun this announcement the way that the angels did, with glory to God first? Obviously, the angels did not understand the importance of relevance and contextualization and meeting felt needs. They started with God, not with peace on earth. Why? Because the most relevant message to this sin-rend world was and always will be glory to God in the highest. Our whole problem is our God neglect. But the best news for sinners like you and me is that whatever we might do, God is still God and God is still glorious. And God's glory is supreme over all other realities. And when this glorious kingdom of his is finally consummated, then there will be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word glory. Several things might come to your mind. You might think of the Civil War movie. You might think of glory in the sense of past fame. Oh, I remember the glory days. People might remember it in regards to a special achievement. Oh, do you remember that season when he was the MVP? Oh, That was the crowning glory of his career. Some people think of glory and they think of beauty. They want to restore that castle to its former glory, its beauty. Or they might think of it in a praise idea, like glory to God. Well, the Bible uses the word glory in kind of two ways. First, it uses it to mean the display or shining forth God's character to others. It also uses the word glory as a synonym for praising God. God. Yet there is a weight of meaning behind those definitions. For the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, literally means weighty. Not in the sense of ounces, pounds, and tons, but in the sense of figurative, like, oh, those issues weigh heavy on my heart. You know, God is weighty. Who he is and what he does should bear weight on our life. If you put God on the scales versus any other issue or being in life, he would be like an elephant in comparison to a mouse. Thus, weightiness sits behind the definition for glory. And the Bible here in the 
story of Jesus' birth is really showing us both of the ways glory is used. One, glory, praise God. Two, glory for God's attributes are being shown through Jesus. And we see this because the angels praise God, glory to God in the highest. And yet also in Jesus, we see centuries before in Isaiah 43 verse 5, which says, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain laid low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What Isaiah foretold of centuries before is what we're discussing today. The birth of Jesus, God's eternal and only Son, in Bethlehem. Thus, Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Thus, at Jesus' birth, the angels call for glory to be given to God, for God's glory has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet this is all tied to a much larger theme throughout the Bible, and that is God's glory and how that glory is seen. And they're going to look at four aspects of that this morning. If you have a bulletin, you can see that on the back. First, glory garbled. Then glory revealed. Glory concealed. And then lastly, glory unfurled. Now first, glory garbled. If you're a sports fan... You know that a couple seasons ago, Tom Brady had a decision ahead of him. Will I stay playing with the Patriots? Will I retire or will I go somewhere else? Well, T-Mobile ran a commercial pretending to show what happened in a conversation with him and his tight end, Gronkowski. When Tom calls Gronkowski for advice, Gronk replies, Got one word for you. Retirement. If you retire now, you'll be walking on soft sand in a week. Just come to Florida and feel the wind in your hair. Retirement is like winning another one. Maybe I'll even join you. Yet, due to the bad connection from the non-T-Mobile network, Tom Brady heard, If you retire now, you're soft and weak. Just come to Florida and win another one. Maybe I'll even join you. The message was the same words, but it got garbled and lost in translation. And a garbled message can distort the actual message. And due to our sin, the message of God's glory has been garbled on earth. It's not clear like it should be. You know, to understand this, we have to realize that anything that reveals God or rejoices in God shows God's glory. Thus, Psalm 19.1 even says, The heavens declare the glory of God. They are showing God's glory. Theologians have called God's revelation of His glory in nature, natural revelation. Nature speaks to us of God's glory. And what was the crowning act of God's creation? It was mankind. We are made in His image. And so in a much greater way than any other part of creation, God intended for His glory to be seen in and through us. Thus Psalm 8.5 declares of mankind, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. As we stated earlier, God's glory is seen when his character is lived out. Now, of course, God's character, such as his omniscience or his eternity or his omnipotence, will never be seen through us. 
But when we love others, when we act justly, when we are creative, when we do anything that reflects God, God's glory is being seen here on earth. And this is where the message of God's glory gets garbled on earth. Sin causes us to send a mixed message on God's character. As Paul writes in Romans 1, we no longer live just to display God and praise God, but we live for ourselves and we praise images on things on earth. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in our actions and our lives. Thus, while humans, even non-Christians, can show love, it's mixed with selfishness. It's tinted with ulterior motives. We can act justly, and yet it's never perfect justice on earth. We use creativity, and yet we use it for good and sometimes destructive purposes. Thus, from mankind, the message of God is garbled. Like Tom and Gronk, sometimes the accurate wording is there, but it's not in the right context or in the right perspective, and we lose the message. And yet, while the glory of God is not seen perfectly through creation, that doesn't mean we should lose sight of the beauty of it, either in creation around us or creation in us. You know, often we have a habit of, if something is wrong, we throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. It's true, you can't fully connect with God in the woods, but you can see and delight in His glory there. A thousand walks on the beach will never make you one with the divine, but it can give you a greater appreciation and love for God. Being overwhelmed with the magnitude of the cosmos will not, will not lead you to know the cross of Christ, but it can leave you overwhelmed that a God who created such a huge universe would care about us specks on one little speck in a cosmos of billions of galaxies. This is exactly what Psalm 8 is all about. For in it, the psalmist considers the heavens. He considers the stars and he's amazed that God would take thought of him. You know, those beautiful aspects of God's glory of revelation in revelation and nature are magnificent, but we still need a clear message of God, his special revelation through his word. And through God's word, we know not just of a generic love of God, but a love that would send his one and only son in the flesh to live and die for us, to conquer sin, death, and the devil. Nature alone, as glorious as it is, will never fully display the glory of God, but rather we need God's word. And that was ultimately what was prophesied in Isaiah 45. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And that's where we turn next. Glory revealed. If you would, turn over one book to John chapter 1. John's gospel, unlike Matthew and Mark, doesn't begin with, the birth of Jesus. Rather, it reminds us and tells us, really, Jesus existed before that birth in human form. He's existed for all eternity as the Word. Let's read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here is this mystery that 
the Word that is going to become flesh, has existed for all time. He was God and He is God. He was with God and He was also the one who created all things. By His Word, everything came into being. But then look down at verse 14. Because verse 14 declares, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At the time John wrote this, there were philosophers, Stoics, who thought the Word was the eternal principle, the rational principle by which everything existed. Jewish thinkers such as Philo thought the Word referred to the ideal man. And John begins this way to draw those people in, but say the Word is just more than a principle or more than an ideal man. The Word is the divine that has become human. Note that the Word didn't appear to be a human, but that He became a human with real flesh and blood. The Word became flesh. Not the Word appeared to be or resembled flesh. And as you read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus was a real man. Jesus grew physically. He experienced hunger. He thirsted. He wept. He suffered. And He even died. And John makes clear that the Word is here not just an abstract principle, but rather it came in a real human form with real flesh and real blood. That thought would not only be inconceivable to some of Jesus' day, it would even be after He came, because later in 1 John, John would say, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. To deny the incarnation is to deny what God has shown us. And yet skeptics existed then, and they exist today. Not too long ago, a couple decades past, some British theologians wrote a book entitled The Myth of God Incarnate. Yet Isaiah's prophecy, John's declaration in the Gospels make clear this is not a myth, it's reality. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, nature gives us a glimpse of God, but it only gives us a garbled message about God. Yet Jesus, the Word made flesh, perfectly revealed God to us. Thus, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. You know, the sun radiates heat because the sun is hot. Jesus radiates the glory of God because He is God Himself. That's why Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. You know, Jesus was and is the visible expression of the majesty and presence of God. And it also said that's true because He is the exact imprint of His nature. At that time, they would make coins and they would stamp on the coin the likeness of the emperor or the ruler. That is the word used here. Jesus is the exact imprint. He is like a coin stamped. You want to see God? Look at the face of Jesus. Look at his life. Jesus himself said, If you know me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You know, this is amazing when you think about the Bible because Moses asked to see God's glory and yet God said, You cannot see me and live. 
And yet in Christ, we were able to see what was unseeable. Thus the focal point, the central aspect of Christmas is what the angels declare. Glory to God in the highest. For in Jesus, the glory of God is made known. Now this is an astounding claim that we often just go, oh yeah. Heard this since I was a kid. You come to church, glory to God in the highest, sing the songs. And yet this is an astounding claim that you should wrestle with. Some of the most foundational and basic questions of life are, is there a God? What is he, she, it like? Has he, she, it communicated with us? Can we even know them? Well, Jesus declares, yes, I am the one true and living God and I have come in the flesh and you can know me and you can know God. This incarnation is the answer to life's most basic questions. So Jesus is either God come in the flesh or he's crazy and you should rule out all that he has said. And yet he's not crazy. And so the correct response is to adore him, Christ the Lord. If there's a tension in this, because I've been saying Jesus is the glory of God revealed, and yet we can't see the glory of God. So how is it that Jesus could be on earth? Well, because in Jesus, while he was on earth, that glory was concealed. Paul writes about this. This is our third point, glory concealed. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2, 5 through 7. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, when he took on human form, emptied himself of his glory that he'd had for all time by taking on that human form. The emptying is clear that Jesus did this by taking on the form of a servant. Rather than using his rights as creator, as sustainer, and to be savior and demand our submission, Jesus submitted to being a servant to his people. Now, we need to be clear here. The emptying that this talks about does not mean that anything was taken away from Jesus. Rather, it means that Jesus chose to set aside his divine rights and he allowed his glory to be concealed. In the incarnation, God the Son did not cease to be who he had always been, but he became what he had not been. When I was in seminary, my professor hammered home this point the incarnation is only addition. Now Jesus is both God and man. The incarnation was in no way subtraction as though Jesus was God and he gave that up so he might become man. So in the incarnation, it's worth repeating, God the Son did not cease to be who he always had been, but he became what he had not been. Or one person put it well, in an act of humility, Jesus willingly concealed the glory due him as the eternal Son of God and did not assert his divine prerogatives or rights. We know that Jesus didn't give up his divinity for Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yet this wasn't seeing Jesus in all his glory. It was concealed. And we read about this earlier. Turn back to the book of Luke 
to Luke chapter 9, what was read for us earlier. Is that one time though, Jesus did allow his glory to be fully seen on earth. There, this passage that we read earlier is known as the transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mountain and there Moses and Elijah come and the glory comes upon him. And we really should notice three things about this passage. First, let's notice who is there. Well, Moses and Elijah, the two most significant prophets of the Old Testament. Moses was the one who led the people out of Egypt and then through Moses, God gave them the law. And through Moses, he said in Deuteronomy, that a greater prophet would come. Elijah was also a great prophet. And Malachi 4, 5 declares that when he returned, the Messiah was to come and bring in God's kingdom. Second, notice in verse 31 what they discuss. It says, we'll start in verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure your bible may have a footnote that says literally in greek the word is exodus just as moses led israel in an exodus from egypt out of physical bondage they now discuss what is jesus exodus going to be what is his leading his people out of bondage going to look like well they're talking about his death and resurrection the exodus that he would bring so that he would deliver us not from physical slavery but from spiritual slavery to sin. You know, on the cross, Jesus paid for the penalty of sin. By the power of the cross, we crucify the power of sin in our lives. And at the return of Jesus, the presence of sin will be eradicated. And on that moment, at that moment, on the mountain, Jesus discusses how his death and resurrection will be this great exodus of which the prior one foreshadowed. It must have been quite a conversation, one that perhaps we would have liked to have some more details, but this is what we're given, and we can rejoice in it. But third, notice what happened. Before the conversation, in verse 29, says the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Mark's gospel describes it by writing that Jesus' garments became radiantly white, more so than anyone could get clothes to be on earth. And then in verse 34, after the conversation with Moses and Elijah, a cloud comes and overshadows them. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you've seen this cloud before. This cloud came down to lead them in the wilderness. This cloud came down when they built the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord came on the tabernacle. The cloud came down when they finished and dedicated the temple. And what are all of those showing? Those were all showing God's glory has come down and dwells here. The transfiguration is showing us God's glory has come down and is represented in my son, Jesus Christ. So in this one unique event during Jesus' life, Jesus face his clothing became radiantly white because they were coming to talk about his exodus and god was showing this is where my glory is seen this is in my son so for most of jesus life his glory was concealed and yet that glory was about to be unfurled due to his death 
and resurrection. Notice, though, that this glory was not something that the disciples saw added to Jesus as though he didn't have this before. But this is what Philippians 2 is talking about, that his glory was set aside. He emptied himself. And here in this unique event, the veil, the curtain was lifted, so to speak, so that the disciples could see the glory that Jesus had had for all eternity. Jesus even discusses this in John 17 at the Last Supper. He prays. And in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know, at the transfiguration, what the disciples saw was what Jesus has had for all time, and that what Jesus concealed when he took on flesh. Jesus taking on flesh concealed his glory. You know, we, they, would not have been able to see him in his full glory on earth. Yet he was willing to conceal his glory so that he might suffer and die as our representative, as our substitute, so that by giving his life, we might have glory and know his glory for all eternity. Now I know when we talk about this here, this doesn't seem that odd. We're used to these things. Yes, Jesus was born. He concealed his glory. We're used to this. And yet, consider this in relation to historical depictions and popular depictions of Jesus at his birth. Think about images you might see around this time. Pictures you see in museum, because what does Jesus often have? A little halo around his head. You look at the manger, and what does it have? A little glow around it, as though Jesus was just going around radiating glory all the time. And yet that's the exact opposite of the incarnation his glory was concealed you know, in the manger jesus looked like any other baby jewish boy he didn't have any special birthmark showing royalty he didn't have any halo showing divinity he didn't have any extra glow that would have set him and mary apart if you had a bethlehem baby lineup he would have been indistinguishable from all the other baby boys in that lineup and this wasn't just in regards to Jesus' physical appearance, but in every other way, as a human baby functions, Jesus would have too. I enjoy singing the song, but if in the manger the cattle started lowing and baby Jesus awakes, I'm pretty sure a lot of crying he would have made. He would have cried a lot, a little. I don't know, maybe he was one of those babies that barely ever cried, but he cried some. Or maybe he was one of those babies that runs the parents ragged because he cries so much and there's nothing you can do to console him he was a baby he would have cried not to be crass but to be realistic jesus soiled his diapers and it spread and it smelled like any other baby's diapers he was a real human now this is the part that's the mystery of the incarnation that god the son who created all things by his words he had to learn his phonics. He had to learn to coo. He had to learn 
to Babel. The one whose hand held the stars in place had to learn how to grip, to grab, and use his fingers. The one who for all existence needed to never slumber or sleep was then completely dependent for food, shelter, clothing, protection, and rest. Yet, Jesus, concealing his glory, taking this on, only existed for a time and a unique purpose. Hebrews 2.9 explains it. We see him who for a little while, just a little time, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus concealed his glory so that he could be the Savior who suffered for us in his death. And due to that now, glory is unfurled. And that's our last point. Glory unfurled. And due to the cross, due to his life, Jesus was fully glorified because he has done everything that his Father asked him to do. And yet, still in a mystery, after his resurrection and before his ascension, his disciples did not fully see him in all his glory. Jesus still kept it in in some way. The disciples, they didn't immediately recognize him, and they didn't see him radiantly glowing like at the transfiguration. Yet now and forever, we hear that Jesus is in his full glory. Glory since he is the creator. And thus Revelation 4.11 tells of those in heaven worshiping, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Also glory, since he is the Savior. And thus Revelations 5, 12-13 tells of people worshiping in heaven, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who is, sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So though right now with our physical eyes we don't see that glory, it is the truth and reality that Jesus is full of glory. And yet the world, our flesh, they're constantly trying to distract us from what is really glorious and get our eyes fixated on what has temporary and fleeting glory. The devil is at work to keep us blinded to the glory of Christ. Thus 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's only as God works in us to see his glory that we'll praise God for it. Thus, two verses later, says, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus, we now by faith can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. By faith though. We will see him now. But when Jesus returns. We will see him with our eyes. And his glory will then be fully known. And fully unfurled. For all eternity. And that. Is our blessed hope. 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the transfiguration was an appetizer. It was a foretaste of heaven where God's glory will be unfurled so brightly that Revelation 21-23 says, And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So though you cannot now see with your physical eyes, you can see with spiritual eyes of faith the beauty and glory of Jesus. No man ever loved, cared, and served like him. Yet he was more than just a man, for he was also God who gave up his glory so that one day we might enjoy his glory for all eternity. You can begin to enjoy that glory now. And the more you do, the more you will be changed into his likeness. You know, we as people realize our need to change, to make our society better, make ourselves better. And we've come up with helpful strategies, tactics, methods. Yet the greatest and most lasting change occurs, as we do, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Remember, we said at the beginning, the root of glory is weighty. What is weighty in your life? What are the important issues or people or situations that weigh heavy on your heart? At Christmas, we rejoice for the glory of God came down in Jesus Christ. May that weigh heavily in the best sense on your heart. As God's image, we were created to live for and adore glory. And our hearts will be restless until we see and savor that glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So who is he in yonder stall? At whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may we see your glory. Lord, there are so many glorious things on earth, but when we compare them, when we put them in the balance, your glory far outweighs anything else. Lord, may we see in each glorious thing here you. May we not be distracted by them, but may we use them to see and delight in you. Even as we enjoy these days with family and friends and enjoying presents and good food. May that just be a greater picture of what you have done for us in Christ. May we see that in Bethlehem, your glory came down so that we might know it for all eternity. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.